So I wanted to try something a little bit different here today on Professor Lab's podcast because, hey, it's the end of the semester, and I don't know about anybody else who's listening, but I am uh, quite busy with regular work in terms of grading and assessments and all that fun stuff. So I wanted to have a little bit fun with something a little bit different. And we've done analysis episodes before about either certain movies or stories. So I wanted to get back into that a little bit as well, because obviously that's content that I think a lot of different types of people are interested in. So if you've clicked on this episode, you may very well be familiar with the story that I want to talk about, which of course is The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas by Ursula K. Le Guin, who is one of my absolute favorite authors of all time. I've read most of her, not most of her novels, but I've read many of her novels and short stories and short story collections. Uh, so I'm a very big fan of her work. I want to do a full episode about her at some point, but there's so much depth to the stories and to what they're really trying to say in a meaningful way about humans and about people, which I always, you know, I think that's good writing, right? I think we could all agree it's good writing. So anyways, yeah, something a little bit different, something a little bit fun. And again, I've actually taught this story before in some of my classes, so I'm quite familiar with some of the interpretations or different types of analysis that students might come up with. I haven't read any literary analysis of this in terms of like academic literary criticism. I actually read a couple paragraphs. That's a lie. And yeah, it it was utterly baffling to me. <laughs> so I just decided not to bother reading more about it uh, and just sort of offer my own insights and interpretation. So if you haven't read this short story, I would say, you know, pause right now. I might include a link in the description, but you can just Google it. This story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas by Ursula K. Le Guin. It's a short story. It's about, I don't know, four or five pages at most. Uh, super quick read. You can read it in maybe 15, 20 minutes, no problem. And I think it's very impactful. It's very powerful. And it will make what I point out, obviously, in the story much more understandable. And I would reread it also, uh, even if you have read it before, because every time I read this story, and this is what I love about stories like this, I feel like I learn something new. I, I gain some further perspective in terms of the degree to which he's actually maybe commenting on certain elements or certain themes in, in slightly different ways. So I would advise to maybe do that. I think that's a good course of action, perhaps. But anyways, assuming that you just paused and you read it and you're back here, let's dive in. And if you haven't read it and you don't feel like it, I think there's some content that I can sort of highlight and talk about anyways, regardless. So anyways, I'm going to start just by kind of going through briefly. Again, I don't want to go through all of the details because I would just be reading the story. But just to summarize kind of how she sets up her story and what she chooses to focus on, which obviously I think is vital, right? If you're writing a story, you have to consider these elements. So the way she starts her short story here is with a celebration in a big city. And when I say big city, it's also an isolated city. It's a very insular city in terms of it's the only city around sort of. Um, I, I think other towns are sort of mentioned, but it's kind of like the city. And the first line, I'll read a few lines here, and I'll just uh, put those in quotations by saying, quote, so that you know what's quoted content and what's not. But she starts her story to describe the celebration as such, quote, with the clamor of bells that set the swallows soaring, the festival of summer came to the city Omelas, bright towered by the sea, end quote. Now, that first line always kind of I don't know. I don't want to say threw me off, but 
it sort of, it's the type of first line that I could see going bad from there, right? Something about the alliteration, the, the swallow soaring, that can so easily become cliche if it's not really set up and supported by, I think, other great content. Again, I think on its own, it's certainly an interesting first line, but it has to work within the context of what else is going on in the story, I think, very well. And she does exactly that. She really doubles down on the detail in that first paragraph, which that's something else that really stands out about her writing, at least in this story. She kind of has either really long paragraphs or very brief paragraphs, like one or two or three line paragraphs in between these sort of page long paragraphs or multi page long paragraphs where you would kind of advise most <laughs> students maybe not to do that. Again, so many of these writing rules you can bend and break and sort of form to your own style once you sort of know how and why you would want to do that. You know, if you read a novel by Jack Kerouac, the entire damn novel might be one long paragraph, right? If you read, uh, you know, Faulkner, there might be a, a one-line chapter or something like that, right? So these rules, obviously, there are standards to them, but there's certainly reasons and situations and styles where, yeah, if you really go through and you sort of see why you would do that a little bit differently, it sort of makes a little more sense in terms of when to, to make those changes or when to bend those rules. But anyways, she kind of doubles down with this detail, sort of the point of the first paragraph, I think, describing this town and this, it's a beautiful town and it's a beautiful celebration. She describes the, the, the people, old people and a uh, quote, old people in long stiff robes of mauve and gray, grave master workmen, quiet, merry woman, carrying their babies and chatting as they walked, end quote. So she describes, you know, all walks of life, essentially, lots of colors, lots of sounds, even the animals, they're sort of in perfection with the humans around them. She says, quote, they were vastly excited, the horses being the only animal who has adopted our ceremonies as his own, end quote. It's almost like a Disney film type thing, right? Where you see the deer and the butterflies and Bambi and all that good stuff. Um, And so that's sort of what's going on in the beginning. And what I think is interesting in terms of how this works in context to the rest of the story is she ends that first long paragraph, which again, I don't know, it's like 20 lines or something. It's really long, longer than most standard paragraphs you would expect to be. But the last line ends with, quote, clanging of the bells, end quote. If you go back to the beginning, well, how did that opening paragraph start with a clamor of bells? So that's one of the details that kind of stood out to me initially uh, going back through and reading this story was this idea that all of this is sort of bookended, this this initial description of this glorious city and glorious celebration within this sort of just whatever she wants to call it, clamor or clanging of bells, this sort of distraction almost from maybe something else. And that's what comes to be revealed later on in the story, of course. So it's almost as if she's more subtly foreshadowing that reality or that contradiction or that turn uh, more so than you might even be able to realize without really paying close attention, which I think is really cool because I don't know if I noticed that on the first read, but in my estimation, just reading back through and having read this story so many times, that seems to me why she would maybe want to do something like that. So anyways, uh, she, then after that first paragraph has the 
I call it a one-line paragraph because it might as well be, but she says, quote, joyous. How is one to tell about joy? How to describe the citizens of Omelas? And it's like, end quote. And it's like, okay, well, I guess you're going to, right? And that's exactly what she does. So there's this interesting balance. Um, and I think, again, it sort of highlights the fact that, well, there's not maybe going to be a good answer to this question if she has to sort of prompt it so clearly. Um, but she, she does go into description. So she says in the next paragraph, quote, they were not simple folk, you see, though they were happy. But we do not say the words of cheer much anymore. All smiles have become archaic, end quote. So there's almost already starting with sort of the artifice of the celebration in the city itself, kind of the larger picture, right? Now zooming into the people themselves, we're sort of starting to, it's almost like the pain is chipping, right? Uh, there, there are cracks in the facade when we get into the actual life that is inhabiting this sort of artifice, which again, I think is an interesting progression, right? It's almost conveying the sense of unsustainability, at least to, to myself as a reader. She goes on to say in that next longer paragraph, quote, given a description such as this, one tends to make certain assumptions. Given a description such as this, one tends to look for the king mounted on a splendid stallion and surrounded by his noble knights, or perhaps in a golden litter borne by great muscled slaves, end quote. And so to me, that sort of again starts to elicit this idea that we know that these things must be supported by kind of maybe hierarchy, but that ties more into the fact that there's sort of a nastiness to it almost, right? Like these great muscled slaves. Well, cool. You want your slaves to be great muscled, I guess? Uh, well, yeah, you don't want slaves at all, ideally, right? So again, something to this idea of artifice and then what's really going on beneath that sort of surface superficial layer, which I think is really interesting. She goes on to say, this is another quote that I think really sort of highlights that contradiction, quote, they did not use swords or keep slaves. They were not barbarians. I do not know the rules and laws of their society, but I, I suspect that they were singularly few, end quote. So this is interesting, right? Because she's saying, well, they don't have these things. So how is this society working exactly? She also introduces the first person I, which that's a whole other can of worms in terms of how and when and why to use that in any type of writing, whether academic writing or fiction writing. Um, there's good reasons to use first person I in certain stories. I've certainly used them in my I've, uh, stories. I've used second person tense, which is saying you, uh, to the reader directly addressing them, which is also a very interesting form. I'd like to do an episode on that sometimes, but anyways, we're getting ahead of ourselves. The eye is really interesting. Um, and she starts to talk about it. I suspect that these laws were singularly few, almost as an outsider. So she's kind of inserting herself as the narrator, which is really interesting. And that sort of, again, sort of chips away another layer, but it also kind of adds another layer because she's kind of allowing you to imagine this world along with her. And in fact, she goes on to say, quote, they were not less complex than us. The trouble is that we have a bad habit encouraged by pendants and sophisticates of considering happiness as something rather stupid. Only pain is intellectual, only evil interesting. This is the treason of the artist, a refusal to admit the banality of evil and the terrible boredom of pain, end quote. 
I don't know if I said quote there, but that's the end of that quote. Sorry, I'm getting very excited reading this because I think this is really good stuff, right? She's sort of identifying here that, okay, you can see yourself in these people however you want to imagine them alongside me, right? And then she's saying these sort of philosophical claims, right? Only pain is intellectual. Only evil interesting. This is the treason of the artist, a refusal to admit the banality of evil and the terrible boredom of pain. That's really, I, I absolutely love that. Those might be some of my favorite lines of the story because it's really pointing to the fact. And I think if you think about bad things in the world, like, yes, the obviously terrible things are horrible, but there's something about sort of just the mundane, right? The the sort of everyday um, desensitization to issues that I think is, is sort of worse, right? And I think that's maybe what she's sort of getting at there. You know, she's admitting that this society doesn't exactly exist. Again, it, it it's all in our mind. She says, quote, for instance, how about technology? I think that there would be no cars or helicopters in and above the streets, end quote. Okay, cool. So we can imagine whatever we want here, uh, right? Um, so we again, need to make this real in our own minds. Uh, and she goes on to say, quote, or they could have none of that. It doesn't matter as you like it. So uh, end quote. So it's up to the reader. She says, quote, I incline to think that people from towns up and down the coast have been coming to Omalas during the last days before the festival on very fast trains and double deck trams again, end quote. Again, this is, you know, a world that she's building, but we can build alongside her too, right? She says, quote, smiles, bells, parades, horses, bleh, if so, add an orgy, end quote. <laughs> so she's kind of saying that whole introduction that she just gave, eh, that doesn't quite do it for you, throw in an orgy. And she mentioned some other ideas as well. But those, you know, again, it's this idea that, okay, well, you know, this is your version of a utopia, essentially, like what you see as a perfect world or something like that, like what you would imagine as the ultimate again, more or less paradise society in terms of how paradise could exist in a functioning physical type place, right? Which again, sort of brings up interesting philosophical questions of, well, how would that be possible? How would that actually function? How would that actually be supported? Ah, and that's sort of what moves us on to the more or less crux of the story. She uh, goes on to say along those lines, quote, one thing I know there is none of in Omelas is guilt, but what else should there be, end quote. That's really interesting, right? She's saying the one thing, right, that there can't be there is guilt, but what else should there be? Well, if you don't have guilt, what's taking the place of that? Uh, interesting. I don't know, but I want to read more, right? <laughs> like, again, she has these lines that they're sort of making me want to kind of, you know, continue on to the next point and really see like, okay, where are you going with this? Uh, there's another interesting line as she starts to transition into what she's going to reveal. And she hasn't said that she's going to reveal anything yet, but you're sort of getting the sense by these admissions, I think, of sort of contradictions, even though they're pretty abstract at this point, I think. Uh, she, so she goes on to say, quote, a child of nine or 10 sits at the edge of the crowd alone playing on a wooden flute. People pause to listen and they smile, but they do not speak to him for he never ceases playing and never sees them. His dark eyes wholly wrapped in the sweet, thin magic of the tune, end quote. So it's almost like a spell. It's, it's almost unhuman. 
And that, to me, makes me wonder, is that a life worth living? Is that a society that's really as great as it seems? Is it, forget about real or not, is it what we want? Uh, is is this what, what what living is, right? And I think it's important that it's a child who's being used as the example here. It's almost robotic in a way. And this, again, is setting us up more specifically for what's going to come in a moment, which starts with the next line as a transition line, the next paragraph. Uh, like I said, these interspersed paragraphs of just you know two, three sentences. And she says in this next transition, paragraph, quote, do you believe? Do you accept the festival, the city, the joy? No? Then let me describe one more thing, end quote. Ah, and that word thing. You know, it's so funny. I am constantly telling my students in drafts, I'll mark it, do not use vague words or phrases like thing. Well, unless you're Ursula K. Le Guin, unless it's very specifically chosen. I don't think she mentions the word thing at all previously in this story. I don't think she uses that word. Maybe she does. I don't know. I may give her a pass again, but she's using it there very specifically. There's something so foreboding and foreshadowing about using the word thing there. Then let me describe one more thing. What is this thing? <laughs> it's almost a, hor a term of horror or impending horror. Again, that's not being lazy. That's being specific and deliberate, ironically, by using what's normally a lazy word. So that's something else I tell my students in, in the comments I make when I highlight words like uh, thing or it is another one. You can use the word it, but you have to ask, is that just you being lazy? Is there a more appropriate way to describe what you are saying other than that which everything obviously is it and she goes on to use that exact word in a much more effective way than if she were just being lazy so i'll show you that in a moment too which i think is again another reason why i love this story so anyways before we get ahead to that she starts in this next paragraph by describing quote the answer to this i'm sorry scrap the quote, uh, describing what this thing is by beginning with where it is. So she begins by saying, quote, in a basement under one of the beautiful public buildings of Omalas, or perhaps in the cellar of one of its spacious private homes, there is a room, end quote. Again, <laughs> she starts sort of vague and she keeps building from there. There is a room. Well, what, what kind of room, right? Uh, I'm almost, uh, it, it's, it's like a, uh, a, a dark, um, what would I call it? I would I would sort of call it a, a morbid curiosity, right? I, I, I want to know more, but I know it's not going to be good. Uh, again, it's almost becoming like a horror film to me in that way, which I, I'm not a fan of horror as a genre. I kind of hate it, but I, I actually like psychological drama. I, I shouldn't say that I hate horror as a genre for that reason. I don't like slasher type stuff, but I, I like the mental stuff, the, the Twilight Zone type stuff, right? And that's sort of the, the vibe I get here. So anyways, I'll just briefly describe the room, but it's about as dark and, again, mundane as you can imagine. As she was saying earlier, thinking about, well, the real horror is this idea of just mundane, uh, m monotony or mundaneness really being awful. And she says, quote, the, the floor is dirt, a little damp to the touch as cellar dirt usually is, end quote. There's nothing unusual about this room, yet I'm still scared by it because I'm scared of what's being hidden within it, 
which she hasn't told us yet. She's describing where, again, and there's a structure to it, where the room is, what the room looks like, what's in the room, I really want to know. And it's so normal so far. So that's going to contrast with what we actually find in the room, right? Again, she's setting us up for all of this. Um, let's see here. Oh, so I'm just going to read you the description of what's in the room because I know you want to know. If you haven't read, and if you have read, it's good to be reminded as per the point of telling this, which will make sense in a moment. She says, quote, The room is about three paces long and two wide, a mere broom closet or disused tool room. In the room, a child is sitting. It could be a boy or a girl. It looks about six, but actually is nearly ten. It is feeble-minded. Perhaps it was born defective, or perhaps it has become imbecile through fear, malnutrition, and neglect. It picks its nose and occasionally fumbles vaguely with one of its toes or genitals as it sits hunched in the corner farthest from the bucket and the two mops. It is afraid of the mops. It finds them horrible. It shuts its eyes, but it knows the mops are still standing there, and the door is locked and nobody will come. The door is always locked and nobody ever comes, except that sometimes the child has no understanding of time or interval. Sometimes the door rattles terribly and opens and a person or several people are there. One of them may come in and kick the child to make it stand up. The others never come close, but peer in at it with frightened, disgusted eyes. End quote. That to me is one of the most terrifying excerpts I've ever read in a story. And here's why. Again, the setup is huge here for the reasons that we said before, but it just gets worse as you go through. And again, all of these objects, we as outside observers, if the child wasn't in this terrible closet, would go in there and think nothing of it. In the context of how the child views it, it's nightmarishly horrifying for reasons that the child can never possibly understand. It's bizarre and it's terrifying. It, it, there's echoes of uh, so much going on here. Plato's cave, uh, it, I don't know, scary Disney mops. Uh, I'm freaking out just think, trying to analyze this. I don't even know where to begin. So I'll just point out some of the key technical elements. Again, starting with this idea that using the it, right? This is a dehumanized character. It could be a boy or girl. It looks about six. It is feeble-minded. It's not a human in terms of comparing it to the people observing it who are objectively terrible because they're coming just to look at what, what does she say exactly they they scowl uh, they they the others never come close but peer in at it with frightened disgusted eyes uh, who's the villain in this picture right so you feel utter pity shame interesting that she said there's no guilt in omelas well there's no guilt on the surface maybe right but there's sure as hell guilt thinking about how they come and they they look at what's going on here right I'm, I'm always so disturbed when I read that that um, area there for those reasons. Um, and in fact, she goes on to say that the child, this isn't a direct quote, but I'll just paraphrase because this is a horrifically long paragraph too, uh, that, that the child begs to be let out. They don't let it. And uh, even as it does beg, and uh, she ends by saying, even as it sits in its own excrement continually, 
It's, she's so good at describing in your imagination what would be the worst possible situation there, right? So I think this sort of leads to the crux of the story, right? Which she says in the next paragraph, which I will give you a bit of an excerpt of. She says, quote, they all know it is there, all the people of Omalas. Some of them have come to see it. Others are content merely to know it is there. They all know that it has to be there. Some of them understand why and some do not, but they all understand that their happiness, the beauty of their city, the tenderness of their friendships, the health of their children, the wisdom of their scholars, the skill of their makers, even the abundance of their harvests and the kindly weathers of their skies depend wholly on this child's abominable misery. End quote. <sighs> Again, okay. Wow. So that's how that perfect or seemingly perfect society is structured. Like we were saying, she said that you might imagine a king and the slaves supporting the king. Well, this is what's supporting the society, right? And this is interestingly a world where people truly understand the horrors that their society are founded upon. And I think that's the interesting point there, right? It's this idea that people have to, in this Omala society have to face the fact that there is this terrifying inequity in order to support or prop up their seemingly good lives, right? And she goes on to say very tangibly how the townsfolk explain all, all of this to their kids who are at first shocked. It's kind of like this loss of innocence, right? And that the reaction of those children themselves or young people themselves is that they want to do something for the child, Um but they know that they can't. And what she says is, quote, if the child were brought up into the sunlight out of that vile place, if it were cleaned and fed and comforted, that would be a good thing indeed. But if it were done in that day and hour, all the prosperity and beauty and delight of Omalas would wither and be destroyed. Again, uh, end quote, sorry. <laughs> Again, it's there's nothing to be done here, right? It's going to destroy their civilization if they do uh, not have this as the foundation. That's what it allows them to do what they do and live how they live. Um, and she uh, has another line building upon that where she says, quote, they know that they, like the child, are not free, end quote, which I think is very telling, right? I mean, that really does sum up to me this idea how, oh, okay, well, you you can't have this society really it, it's it's not it's not working in terms of how they are able to really console these two paradoxes right but they do and that's sort of the point in this society they they are sort of forced to try to console it which is interesting because then that leads to the acknowledgement of the contradiction leads to what do you do with that right do you just sort of accept it do you kind of try not to think about it? Like, what is your reaction to that, right? And one final line that she has, another one of those inter-short line paragraphs that she has uh, before the final paragraph, she says, quote, Now do you believe in them? Are they not more credible? But there is one more thing to tell, and this is quite incredible, end quote. So I probably, I don't know, I'm just going to read the last paragraph because I think it kind of sums up uh, some of the main thematic ideas that I just want to briefly touch upon before we wrap up. So the last paragraph, she says, quote, uh, 
At times, one of the adolescent girls or boys who go to see the child does not want to go home to weep or rage, does not, in fact, go home at all. Sometimes a man or a woman much older falls silent for a day or two and then leaves home. These people go out into the street and walk down the street alone. They keep walking and walk straight out of the city of Omalas through the beautiful gates. They keep walking across the farmlands of Omalas. Each one goes alone, youth or girl, man or woman. Night falls, the traveler must pass down village streets between the houses with yellow lit windows and out into the darkness of the fields. Each alone, they go west or north towards the mountains. They go on. They leave Omalas. They walk ahead into the darkness, and they do not come back. The place they go towards is a place even less imaginable to most of us than the city of happiness. I cannot describe it at all. It is possible that it does not exist, but they seem to know where they are going, the ones who walk away from Omalas. End quote. So to me, it seems pretty evident just reading that what really is going on here. I'm just kidding. I <laughs> I wish it were that simple, right? But no, I do, I do think that there are there are some some key ideas here to consider, and I think you can think about those ideas in different ways. But I, you know, to me, reading through that and considering everything else we've pointed out so far. I, I sort of see these connections as standing out pretty strongly, right? I think the fact that she ends by saying that she can't describe this place at all and that, that people leave to go th to from Omalas and that it's less imaginable to most of us in the city of happiness points to the fact that we try to live in societies that we make look happy or seem happy, even with everything that we know that's going on in the world in order for society to exist at all the way it does that is, you know, not so great. And that a world where all of that is addressed, how, how do you even imagine that? What that looks like? It's so radically different. How, how would you redistribute and, you know, deal with all of that? I don't know. And I don't know if it's possible. And I think that's what she's saying too, right? Does it start with the acknowledgement of these reality, realities? Um, you know, we, we know that bad things go on in the world, but are we really doing things to fix them or do we even really care? Are there so many conflicting interests and factors at play that again, it's impossible to get everybody on the same page in terms of a global scale, but should we still try? And I think that's sort of the main question. And I think that's maybe what she's trying to point to that we have to try. Um, and so again, there's ideas here in terms of you can't really have, uh, suffering. Uh, I'm sorry, you can't really have joy maybe without suffering. You can't have happiness without pain. That's one interpretation, but I think it's more of this, the practical aspect of how this plays out in the real world and in society and throughout history. You know, if you look at great civilizations, well, what is a great civilization? Good question. It depends on what your metrics are. You're talking about total population. You're talking about the size of their buildings. You're talking about their life expectancy. It's a subjective term, and of course, you can identify those factors and then catalog and say, "Yeah, this was the greatest civilization of you know that era for these reasons." But you have to be clear what those metrics are, and you have to then look at, well, what else was going on that wasn't fair or that wasn't equitable or you know wasn't you know <laughs> an even playing field for most people involved. 
I don't think there's been a society that is fair throughout history, right? Maybe some more so than others, but again, you have to define what fair is even then. So there's lots of examples, I think, in the real world and in our real lives, right? Where we really, again, if you think about global issues especially, you have to ask, well, how does this issue really exist in terms of, is it unmanageable to really make change? And are we sort of ignoring it, right? Like the one example I'll give, because I don't want to get into too many sociopolitical examples and, and arguments, because uh, I don't think this is a time and place for it, but there are plenty. And just one off the top of my head that I came up with was, well, thinking about cell phone technology or something like that, right? Where you can sort of identify that and say, well, you know, at least I have read that there, that's such a bad way to start an argument. Well, I've read, I have read this, um, no, but I, I've read actual information on this, right? Where a lot of uh, materials might come from less fair sources, right? Well, think of it this way. If, you know, you are living in a country where you have iPhones and you want certain rights and worker rights and pay, but you're using devices that people who make them or who make materials for them don't have those same rights, well, how is that fair, Right. And that's sort of, I think, what the Omelas example is getting at, that we in modern society sort of ignore a lot of that. And even when we do acknowledge it, we we don't actually do anything about it, either because we can't, because we're not actually free. I can't not have a phone and function in this society, right? I need a phone to do my work. Or do I? Can I walk away from that? Can I refuse to have a smartphone until... I say these companies do a better job at, you know, whatever, uh, treating their workers and where these materials are sourced from more fairly. Can I do that? Well, maybe. Is that walking away from Omelas? I don't know, right? But I think it's this idea of, of thinking about that. And again, like, would that even be possible if we were all to do that and say, yeah, we demand that, you know, workers are treated more fairly, all those workers? Well, that's going to cost more money. So all of a sudden an iPhone costs, you know, thousands of dollars. I don't know, unless the companies make less themselves, right? Can they do that? I don't know the price cost ratio or margins. And I think that's sort of what she's getting at. It's a lot more complicated than just either ignoring the issue or throwing your hands up or going full throttle against it. There's, there's, it's so much more complicated than that, which I think, again, we don't sort of always know the path, but I do think that there's a strong idea there in terms of at least acknowledging it and being aware of it and getting enough people to do that to get on board with it because that is how change happens and that is how things do improve over time, I think, ultimately. And to me, that's sort of the conclusion that I wanted to end with for this analysis, which is the idea that I think what she's saying is that we are both, individually even, that we as a reader, we are both in Omelas and we are the child in the dungeon, essentially. Because like she says, the people of Omelas are not free, just like the child. One doesn't exist without the other. And I think she's saying that's who we are. And in order to not be that, you have to sort of walk away from that whole model. But you can't just walk away. What are you walking towards, right? So this is where I think it gets very philosophically... Um, you know, so you can sort of go in different directions with it and you can talk about it in different ways. And I think you should. And uh, I would be really interested to hear what everybody else has to say about this, because I'm sure a lot of people 
who are fans of Ursula K. Le Guin or who have re- fans of the story, who have read the story, uh, might utterly agree with everything <laughs> I've had to say so far, uh, or have a lot more to say in addition to this. Uh, and, and I think that's, again, that's actually the fun part, I think, of literary analysis, where you can sort of bounce ideas off each other and, and hear more. So um, those are my thoughts. Basically, just having read through this many times and, and reading through it again, again, I think it's a fantastic story. I would love to hear what anybody else has to think. So you can uh, let me know. I mean, we have lots of ways to contact each other. Well, I don't know if that's true, but uh, you can comment uh, on our podcast. Uh, we're on YouTube as well as uh, professorlabs.podbean.com, or you could tweet directly at me. Uh, I always encourage people to do that too. So you can tweet at us. Uh, our Twitter handle is at JOT Labs. Again, would love to hear your ideas, your thoughts, and any suggestions you have for other stories that you want to uh, maybe have us talk about. I have a lot more that I, I maybe want to cover. And again, I like short ones like this that we can really sort of dig into and, and dive into. So those are just some of my thoughts on the city of Omalas, which uh, interesting, but I think, again, like much of her writing and much of great writing in general, it all comes back to reflection of ourselves really and having us reflect upon ourselves, which if writing is making you do that, I think it's pretty damn good writing. And she's a pretty damn good writer. Um, so I, I, I have a few more stories of hers I, I still haven't read. Like I said, I've read many of them. But I, I kind of, you know, it's funny. She's one of those authors where I, I kind of was like, I don't want to read all of it because then I'll be out of it, right? I still have one or two Vonnegut novels that I've done that with for that exact reason. So uh, one of these days. But yeah, anyways, uh, please uh, thank you again. Leave any comments. Uh, you can subscribe and uh, on our main site, like I said, professorlabs.podbean.com, and you'll you'll get updates when new episodes come out as well. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, hope to hear from you if you uh, do have thoughts. And uh, until next time, I would just say to consider why and how you would walk away from Omalas yourself. And in addition to that, as always, keep learning.